Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 129. We are still in the midst of the Gospel of John where Jesus is giving these, so to speak, farewell addresses. We've, in the previous weeks, we called them most recently kind of like a priestly benediction to his disciples. And last week we were in the 17th chapter of John, where Jesus is continuing saying that he has glorified the Father's name through his life and obedience, and now he's asking God the Father to glorify him through this, all these events are going to take place through his suffering, death, and resurrection. And the big takeaway from last week was that it seemed as if Jesus was praying specifically for his disciples. Whenever he says, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, specifically in terms of their responsibility, their authority to take this message, this ministry, this gospel of repentance to not only to the nation of Israel, but out to the ends of the earth after he you know, gives them the spirit um, after his victory over sin and death. Yeah. And then there's this concept where Jesus is saying that he's no longer in the world, but <laughs> they are in the world. Um, and then ending that section with saying that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And we spent some time recognizing that Jesus is not saying that we need to rid ourselves of all physical aspects of our life so that we can become heavenly entities or bodies or whatever. The things of the world, he means, are things that are contrary to the nature, the character, the heart, the essence of God. And Jesus is issuing to his disciples to continue to be of the things of God while you are still in a world that is contrary to you. And he he says in this section that, you know, the world has hated me. They're going to hate you because we're not of this world. We are not of the things that they are about. We We are about redeeming this physical creation. And then we ended with Jesus saying that he is consecrating himself, that they may be sanctified in the truth. Yeah. Yeah, this uh, this last chapter, chapter 17 of John, obviously it's one giant prayer and it is, you you kind of hit on it. It started out where he was praying specifically about himself. It expanded. He was praying specifically about the disciples. And though we can see ourselves and and sort of extend it out to us in other ways, at least in the context, he is praying for them. And now as we enter verse, uh, what are we going to look at? Verses 20 to 23, this is where he's actually moving away, not just from the disciples, but now talking about all believers and somewhat of a universal scope, like all believers across all time, everywhere, that kind of thing. So let's go ahead and read that and see what we got. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. All right, there it is again. I don't know if Jesus really talked this way or this is John's way of doing it because we see it a lot more in John than anywhere else, but just convoluted language, you know, talking all that. I don't know who really talks like that. It's very strange, but let's see if we can break it down. 
the first of all, as I mentioned, we've we've sort of now entered into okay, so Jesus's prayer has now moved to all believers, and and he's just finished up praying as if he was referring only to the eleven, but now it's expanded. So it's it's for all who believe in Jesus through their word, and I think although we do have their word as like the next decades when they're actually going to go out and speak to people, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also through the written gospels, the, the record that they have kept for us. So, so I think it applies even to us today. And I think you could even go farther out and say, it's even those who hear from us. So, I mean, just this is just for everybody who believes. Now, saying all that, what's the point or the goal of all this? Well, here, it seems that Jesus' number one topic, the thing that he cares about more than anything, is that there would be unity. Just as Jesus and God are one in unity, okay, now we know we, we have this separate idea that Jesus is God, and it's like, okay, I'm good with that, but Jesus and God are one in unity, the disciples are one with Jesus in unity, with God in unity. We, too, can be one with them in unity. And maybe we shouldn't say can be. It's more like, no, we must be. If we are going to be called believers, if we're going to be called disciples, if we're going to be called Christian, we must be one with them in unity. And why? so the rest of the world might also believe. God wants all men to recognize that he sent Jesus as his Messiah, that God has actually fulfilled the promise of redemption that was like way back at the very beginning of the story. It's for everybody. Everybody could see it. Now, he says this thing that's a little bit weird, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Now, the English translation I'm reading says glory could also be translated as maybe something less, uh, I don't know, ethereal or something. It could be just like praise or it could just be honor. And, and it probably wouldn't feel quite so grand, but it might feel a little easier to relate to. And those would be really, really good things if, that, if that's what Jesus was talking about, if that's what would be given to us, you know. But the point of receiving this glory is unity and oneness, right? That's the, the main part of the context here. So let's think about that for a second, Samuel. What, when we talk about God's glory, what are we most often talking about? When would we use that word? Uh like God's glory hovering over the tabernacle or the temple. Right. And so it's it's his presence in some way. God's glory often is his presence. And so receiving his glory, it's for the sake of unity and oneness. And so if if we're remembering the context and how how much of this whole thing has been about his words and his instructions, and then it, it led into this idea of the Spirit and how we've also talked about, wait a second, it's the Spirit, that's the one who helps us truly comprehend his words, his instructions, etc. So the Spirit is, and I think, I think we can all agree on something like this, the Spirit is in some sense a manifestation of, of God's glory. It is somehow God's presence here among us. And so I think we can look at that and say, look, that glory that he's given us, it, it, it's, it's all about the spirit and the instruction from the teaching and, and having that, that is what enables us to be in unity with him, in oneness with him, and, I mean, if you think about it, ultimately Jesus was a manifestation of God's glory, but that was kind of a, a different way. But 
the, the disciples, they needed to be a manifestation of his glory, and we too can be a manifestation of his glory, or maybe again, we should say not can be, but must be. And how? It's through unity with him. It's, it's through the, the, the teaching, the instruction, the word, the spirit, helping, etc., all of that. And again, the point, unity. It's how the world will know that we are his and that Jesus was, I don't know, the real deal. Now, Samuel, all that unity, does that sound good to you? For sure. Yeah. Looking around at the church nowadays, are you seeing all that unity? <laughs> I'm seeing Southern Baptist, Separate Baptist, Methodist, uh, First Alliance of the High King, Yeshua, whatever. Right, right. Yeah. I, mean, I don't even know what the numbers are anymore. I've heard estimates as high as even like forty to 50,000 denominations. What kind of deal is that? How can we even say unity? Okay, now I get it. On one hand, you look at all those denominations, you go, man, that doesn't really speak of unity, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and I'll be the first to admit, we have differences. And maybe I should say it stronger. We have substantial differences. But I also think there's, I don't know. In some sense, it can't be avoided in this world. Let's say pre-kingdom. Even with the spirit, etc., I think that there's, it, it, we're just dealing with humans, we're dealing with corruption, self-centeredness, it, it, we could just fill in the blanks with all kinds of stuff. I just think it's nigh on impossible, can we say it that way? <laughs> and, and the differences, I think they may, in, in many circumstances, you know, they just make it impossible for us to gauge in and I'm going to call it like really, really close fellowship, as in, yeah, man, we're in the same church. We do all the same things together. We're like just a family. If you disagree on some, you know, fairly big points, that can be difficult. But there is a unity which we can enjoy that transcends these differences. You know what, Samuel, I'm going to keep saying it. Not just we can enjoy it, we must enjoy it, right? We we might call it, maybe we could, uh, you know, separate a little bit and say, well, it's a spiritual unity, right? It, it It's part of the reason Jesus went to the cross. We have to put aside this whole, I'm right, therefore you are wrong attitude and demonstrate a sincere and devoted love toward one another, even in the differences, we can have disagreements. We can think that the other guy is crazy while they're thinking that we're crazy. And yet, we can live in and demonstrate a sincere and devoted love. And it's, it's that love that we would have for one another. Even though, yeah, you know what? It might become a little frustrating or irritating or whatever if we really tried to be in a church family together, whatever, because we just, we just see it differently. We're just convinced differently. But the way that we love one another across those, let's call them denominational lines, well, that's what demonstrates our love for him. Sure, it's how we act as a, a single body. Maybe you think of like a single church or whatever. That does too. But how we do it across those lines, that's an even bigger deal. And I think... As a general rule, we've done a really good job of failing at that. <laughs> but it demonstrates how this thing that we're called to, this Christianity, this life that we're supposed to live, it's a high, high calling. It's a difficult thing. I actually think it's, uh, it's necessary. When, when you hear those phrases like, how do we know? It's the love they have one for another. Well, I think that means across the whole body, not just your little local church where you like everybody and you all think the same thing. So it's a big deal. But anyway, I guess I'll stop preaching on that one. Yeah, and you ended there with saying that we probably are experiencing some 
like large scale, like 10,000 foot view failure within the body in terms of living that out. And would you say that that is why we're not seeing Jesus's prayer being answered, like specifically in verse 23, where it says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So it's like, is the reason we don't see that is because we have failed to take up that calling? Or yeah. is it because God in his timing has not answered that yet? Or is this supposed to be a picture of what the body is going to look like when Messiah returns? I, I don't know. That That's just tough for me to read because it's like that hasn't to me that hasn't happened yet or it's not happening. Yeah. Well, I think that there definitely is that component that says, okay, but yeah, it'll look perfect, like when we see it come to fruition in the kingdom, or especially the world come, or whatever. No question about that. That is a real thing. However, in the same way that we talk about things like, yeah, we can reach out and bring that little bit of the kingdom into the here and now. There's an, a now and a not yet aspect of the kingdom, and right? We, we, we've talked about those kind of things. I think your your original question, is this why we're not seeing and, and I would say, yeah, this is why. Because we we have not done a good job at loving one another. We have not done a good job at becoming one united body. Sometimes I think we do really well in like one little local group, family, church, whatever you want to call it. That that can happen. But even a lot of times, those aren't that great. <laughs> People just irritate each other. But yeah, I, I think I think this is the thing, and and we need to recognize, like so many other things that we've talked about in this podcast, Samuel. You have a role to play in this. You can't just sit back and passively expect God to just do all this stuff. This is what you, as a Christian, are being called to. We all have to work these things out. Does that answer anything or bring up anything so. else? No, I think that illustrates what was going on inside my head and gives us more room to ponder. Yeah, it's on one hand, you could look around at the church and it just make you sad. What is wrong with us? What are we doing? But on the other hand, I don't know, there's 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 hope in the fact that but if we would Simply listen and obey. Become like him, image him, you know, follow his instructions. All of this stuff could happen. And I don't want to, well, let me just say it this way. I have a different view of what revival really is or what revival really looks like. And this thing that we're talking about right here, (laughs) that's revival. This is the thing that's going to turn the world upside down, you know. That's interesting that you bring that up with all of the revival that's supposedly happening over in Asbury University right now. Yeah, yeah, and I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing or throwing shade or anything like that because I've not been there, haven't experienced it, so I can't say anything about it. I'm just saying that even with those kinds of things going on, I just have a different view of what... Mm -hmm real revival is you know yeah. so yeah but you know me I've, I've got a i've got kind of a different view of the world so but that's okay all right well let's go on uh in fact we're going to finish up john chapter 17 we're going to look at verses 24 to 26 father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right. Now, this little section, I I have to believe that there are going to be some people who disagree with the way I'm going to present it here. I'm looking at this whole thing, and I'm saying, hey, 
He started out talking about himself. He moved on talking about the disciples. He's now moved on to talking about like the universal world of believers across all time. And I'm going to say he's staying there. Other people are going to look at this and they're going to go, no, I mean, look at that language. I made known to them your name, whatever. He's going back and talking about the disciples again. I see it. I get it. I just, I think that he is, in fact, sticking with the broader group of people. And I understand people that don't agree, but that's whatever. I'm going with it. And so I'm just saying, if we look at it this way, if we remember that at this point Jesus is speaking of all believers, then Jesus is telling God that what he really wants, his desire, his will, is that we could be with him and see his true glory, which, and again, just to repeat it, God gave him because he's loved him since before the world existed. And, and see, that's one of those spots right there, Samuel, where, you know, what do you do with that? How do you not walk away saying, man, I don't know, this dude, I mean, to say that he is not divine or that he is not God, a statement like this is pretty incredible. It, 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 it has to be difficult to overcome. But anyway, back to the original question. See him in his true glory. The question is, where is that? Where does he want us to see him? Now, it'd be easy to jump to, I don't know, like the, the typical image of us being in heaven with him while he's sitting on a throne at the right hand of the Father, you know, and the Father is on his throne, right? And that all sounds so great, except that that story, that imagery, it just doesn't really fit the scriptures, the story that's in your Bible, at least not anything that we know of it. It's not there. So, and, and I mean, just think of it. God has no actual physical presence in heaven. I mean, God is spirit. Uh, uh, he, it, it, scripture even says that he is invisible. What the heck is that? And, and then you, you say that he's sitting on a throne. Is there even an actual throne the way we imagine it? I mean, all of this, this whole idea of us being with him in heaven and all that, it's a, it's a weird imagery. For, it doesn't fit the scripture, and it doesn't even make sense because it's not a physical created realm. So it's all, it's, it's just very, very weird. So, but then you got to ask, well, if Jesus wants us to see him in his glory, be with him, etc., what is he talking about? When will this be? And so, like, I'm just going to go with a few of the big heavy hitters. Well, maybe he's talking about it, death. I mean, let's just say we will hopefully be in paradise, which we, through the scriptures, it, it, we call it the grave. We know that in the grave or Sheol, there is both paradise and Gehenna, which kind of it mimic that or, or, or they, they fill out that image of like the heaven hell kind of thing. But it's all a little mysterious. What we do know is that at death, somehow, in paradise, you know, we're, we're in the heavens, but it's in a way that we don't fully understand. God's presence is there, and yet, in all the descriptions, it, it, it seems that it's somehow not immediate. You know, it's like, like you're not sitting in front of the throne kind of thing, whatever, uh, with that imagery. I, I don't know. It, it, it's almost important to the story because the big ending is God dwelling with man in creation. And so paradise is some kind of prelude to that. And so, I don't know, seeing Jesus in his glory is, I mean, would it be during that time of death in between when we die and when we're resurrected? Well, I mean, it could be, but for me, that one doesn't seem like it fits very well. The next possibility would be in the kingdom, where, okay, Samuel, are we going to see Jesus' glory in the kingdom? We should be. Yeah, yeah. In fact, here's another thing. Since we're going to be resurrected, or I guess for those very odd few who are sort of alive when it all happens or whatever, uh, translated, we will have the Torah fully written on our minds and hearts. 
And so in a sense, think of it this way, Samuel, we will truly see his glory in a way that maybe we could never see and understand it before because we will actually be like him. And we, you know, another interesting point is think about it. When the kingdom happens, it's in the context of this world and this age. And so if his glory is to be seen by us during the kingdom, well, that's going to be in contrast to this world in this age, which I think sort of adds a, a highlight or an emphasis to it. It's kind of a cool thing. Anyway, all told, I would say that this is a pretty good fit for us seeing him in his glory, right? That's a good thing. And then the next one would be like the world to come. Now, the world to come, it's an awful lot like the kingdom, except that it's not going to be in this world, in this age. It's all going to be made new. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, all of that. And so the one thing that we would be missing out on is Jesus's glory in contrast to this fallen, corrupt world. So that's the thing. Uh, We'll see his glory. It's just not in contrast to anything else. So it makes the world to come also a really good fit, but it does kind of give the kingdom, I don't know, kind of a leg up. Like, I don't know, that would be the, the, the better, more exciting version of seeing him in his glory or something like that, right? But I don't know. Maybe one of those sounds better to you than another. Maybe you have a different idea altogether. I don't know. For me, I think I just kind of lean toward Jesus referring to the kingdom as the part that's making the most sense, us seeing him in his glory. But Jesus finishes up, <laughs> Jesus is, <laughs> Jesus finishes up with some repeat stuff, but it, you know, it's good stuff. The world does not know God, but Jesus does. The disciples know that Jesus was sent by God. But remember in context here, we've sort of gone out to the, the whole set of believers, like that would include us too. So we know that Jesus was sent by God. Uh, Jesus has been instructing them, I'm going to say us, that they might know God's name, his character, his nature, his reputation, his authority, etc. And in fact, he's going to keep instructing them, and I'm going to again say us, first through the, the upcoming example that's in his suffering and death and resurrection, that's obviously a really big deal, but then through the Holy Spirit and why, it's a little bit different here, first so that they and we might have God's love in us, in them, in us, the same love that God shows toward Jesus, and, and then they, we, must be the conduit of God's love to all of mankind. And, and, and that's why we need the instructions. That's why we need the Spirit. That's, we need to know what love really is. If we define it for ourselves, it's kind of like being back at the garden and whatever. It's, just, it's, it's never going to work. We're all going to have a different definition. Another thing to add on is that Jesus might also be in them. And I'm going to say in us. It's that whole unity thing. This is the story that we are all called to be a part of. And just like we ended up in the earlier section, Samuel, this is, this is a high, high calling. When you read this, I, I know that you've expressed a few different times over these uh, recent podcasts how, man, I don't know, I, I, I keep hearing it's supposed to be great or it's supposed to be this or it's supposed to be that, but I don't see it. I, you know, what's going on? What It feels like, I don't know, it's not true, or it hasn't come to pass yet, or, I mean, you know, however, it, it, lots of different ways you could see it. But in the end, the other thing is, we need to be reading this and saying to ourselves, man, this is a high calling. This isn't, this isn't just a book of, hey, look at all the wonderful things that God has given you. Just sit back passively and enjoy. That isn't the story. It's, hey, look at all these wonderful things God has done for you and what he is offering to you. You need to grab it. You need to work for it. Not because somehow your work saves you, but this is the thing. This is what you're saved for. This is your role in the story. So, I don't know. Again, it's a high, high calling. Definitely. 
and this aspect that you're talking about that Jesus telling God that what he really wants is that we could be with him and that we could see his true glory. When you said that, my mind jumped all the way back to the Torah in Exodus, Exodus 33, specifically when Moses is up on Mount Sinai conversing with God. And in verse 18, Moses says explicitly, like, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And then it continues in verse 19 and 20, where he's going to pass in front of him. He's going to see him from behind. But then in verse 20, he said, but you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. So part of me is seeing this connection where I think that your possibilities in terms of like at death or in the kingdom or in the world to come, like those are all very valid I guess I'm just bringing this up in a general sense to say that there's a problem with our current reality now where we can't draw near to like the purest form of God's glory because of right. sin and death being you know intermingled within our flesh that makes it impossible for us to be able to live and experience that but Jesus is saying that like because of the work in like in his life and obedience and then his upcoming death this aspect that of Moses's question is going to come true in its purest sense in a coming day like we yeah. will be able to yearn and ask that same question lord show me your glory and god will be able to say yes because of the merit of Jesus and then whatever that means for us, whether it's a resurrected body, a restored creation in the, you know, in the grave in paradise, whatever. So I just wanted to bring that parallel up because I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Moses and the glory. That's just one of my favorite stories. You know, it's good. Yeah. Anything else? Don't believe so. Well, we have officially completed all of the farewell address stuff. Nice. And I don't know why. Yeah, I feel like, man, that's just good news. That just seemed like a really long section. And it's not that there aren't great things in there, but I don't know. I, I, I want to get back to the story because when we, you know, when we started all the farewell address stuff, we had gone through all of the, the dinner together and Judas had taken off. And it's like we were reaching the, the climax of this story, and then we had to take this big break <laughs> through all the farewell addresses. So I'm feeling really good about continuing on. So, Bye, farewell addresses. Hope you find right. your dad. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, that's a great movie. All right. So uh, we're going to move now. Uh, I know this is going to sound weird. We're now going to be looking at John chapter 18, <laughs> verse 1. <laughs> But it's going to be, you know, actually uh, lining up with some of the others. And so this is also, uh, for example, Luke chapter 22, verse 39. I'm going to go ahead and read from John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Okay. At this point, and again, I'm trying to connect back to you know, where we left off in like the, the, the climactic part of the story. We can finally say with confidence, the last Seder or the last supper, whichever way, it, it's now done. It's over. It's complete. It's kaput. It's finito. We now enter into what is commonly called the passion. Now, I'm just going to say this because I know in my life, it's always been a confusion for me, but I think it's confusing for all modern people. When we say the passion, what are we talking about? Because we usually think of it's like intense emotions, you know, or something like that. The passion means the suffering. And so when you think of, when we talk about the passion story, the passion narrative, it's about his suffering and death, okay? So now we're into the passion. Luke and John together, they've got, Jesus and, let's say, the eleven, going over the brook Kidron and to the Mount of Olives. That came from Luke. 
Now, just to so you get an idea, if you're in Jerusalem, you got the city wall on the east side, and there's a valley, the Kidron Valley, off to the east, and there's actually it's like three mounts. I don't want to say mountains, but three mounts on that eastern side of the city. And and the one in the middle, as I understand it, is the Mount of Olives. Okay? So they leave Jerusalem, they go down a valley, and then they're in like what would be that middle mount, maybe at the base or whatever, but still they're they're around the middle one. And it seems that they're going to a very particular and seemingly familiar place, a specific garden. And, you know, it, it seems that this was Jesus's custom or their custom altogether, whatever. Just so you can kind of paint that picture in your mind, it was probably an olive grove at this time. It doesn't look like that nowadays so much because there's so many, you know, graves over there and all that kind of thing, but it's probably a beautiful little olive grove. And uh, just as an interesting side note, there's sort of a general rule, goes with the Passover festival. And the rule was that all of the participants must remain within the city limit. And, and you know, we would normally think of that as like the city walls. So in Jesus's day, Jerusalem did have walls around it, and they were supposed to say within the city limits. And you can go see that. You can see where they get that from if you read Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 7. However, it was also common in Jesus's day that they would kind of I don't know what else to call this, maybe extend the boundaries beyond the walls so that people could camp in and around the city. And it was just a practicality. I mean, there were just a lot of people. Is it, could it have been physically possible for all of them to stay within the city? Well, okay, maybe, yeah. But would it have been ridiculous and stupid to try to be a part of that? Yeah, probably so. So as a practicality, they just sort of let people camp out there and this eastern side along that valley, that was like super popular. So Jesus, he seems to be one of those that takes advantage of this regularly. As it says, it was his custom. So if anybody's wondering why did they leave the city, that's why. It seems like it was okay, whatever. So there you go. Let's move on. That's setting up the the story for the passion slash suffering. All right. So the next bit, this covers Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Also, Mark chapter 14, verse 32, and Luke chapter 22, verse 40. I'm going to end up having to read from two of them because I just can't get all the info in here. So Matthew says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Luke adds this little bit. It says, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Okay, so Matthew and Mark They name this familiar little garden area. It is Gethsemane. Now, the name comes from Hebrew. There's the Gat Shemanim or Gat Shemnei, something like that. Forget the pronunciation, whatever. I'm not, I I don't know it. But you can kind of hear it. Gethsemane, Get Shemanim, that kind of thing. But it means something like olive press or oil press, something like that. And some historians, archaeologists, they actually believe there may have been a press in this garden, maybe, you know, hidden, not hidden, but located inside a little cave or something like that. Maybe, don't know. But just think about this for a second, Samuel. They're, They're in an olive garden. There may have been an actual press in the garden. Doesn't matter if there was or not, but you get the idea. We're talking about some super cool symbolic overtones here. I mean, just think about olives and olive oil, the crushing pressure, the stress, the being drained, etc. I mean, it, you, can, you can see how this symbolically represents what Jesus is going to go through in this place. I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool imagery. Now, at this point, according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus is instructing all of his disciples to simply stay put. Now, that's going to change here quickly, but so far, this is what they're saying. He appears 
to be talking to them all, and he doesn't request that they pray or that they stay awake or watch or anything like that. Just stay here. Jesus is going to go farther and and pray alone, or, or so it seems. But remember, I read the Luke bit, and now Luke, he kind of has it a little different. He does have Jesus instructing them to pray. And for what? He wants them to pray that they might not enter into temptation. Which, did you hear that, Samuel? What's that remind you of? Um, Isn't it, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? Yeah, yeah, the Lord's Prayer, or, you know, the Disciples' Prayer, whatever you want to call it, Matthew 6, 13. Yeah, now, maybe it's just me, but, you know, I, I kind of expected Jesus to say something more like, hey, guys, I, I want you to stay here and pray because uh, I'm about to go through some stuff <laughs> and I need a little support. You know what I'm saying? But he doesn't. Here's Jesus. He's going through what is, and we're going to see as we read further, this is just a really big, stressful thing. And instead, he wants them to pray for themselves. He wants them to pray for all that they're about to go through, the things that are going to tempt them. What kind of temptations? Like to walk away or fall away, if you want to say it that way, to deny him or lose faith, lose hope, whatever, all of that. They should pray for themselves that 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 kind of thing doesn't happen. And and even further, because he talked about this before, if it does happen, that they should also pray that they would recover. And here's a thing that we maybe don't often think about, right? This is Satan's big moment, right? He thinks that he is going to have some sort of victory over God, over Messiah, all of that, whatever. So Satan wasn't only after Jesus in this moment. He was after Jesus. Jesus is going to go willingly, God's will, but he was also after the disciples. And let's, let's, Look back. Samuel, I'd like you to read from Luke chapter 4, verse 13, way back. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. (laughs) Who's he departing from? Do you remember where this came from? Oh, was it? It's not the guy that uh, had the... No, no. These are the temptations after he was in the desert for 40 days. Ah. I surprised you with this one, huh? Yeah. Yeah, but think about that. All the way back then, Satan was going after Jesus, tempting him, doing all these things, and Jesus withstood it all. The devil, when he'd ended every temptation, he departed until an opportune time. Guess what? Does anybody know what time it is? (laughs) Oh, wait, that wasn't right. What's tool time? Does everybody know what time it is? (laughs) Right? This is that opportune time. So, Satan's coming after Jesus, and I think it's reasonable to thank them as well. Now, interesting point, though. Oh, this was so good, Samuel. So, in the Septuagint, when you see the word temptation, or or the word, you know, translated with the same Greek word that is temptation or whatever, it's also used for the name of a place, Masa or Meribah. And it's one of those instances when Israel was tempted themselves. They were grumbling, whining, complaining, whatever. And in their grumbling, they tested God. Now, the story, the whole story is like Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. But Samuel, I'd like you to just read verse 7 for us. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Yeah, now think about that. The test, the, 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 the temptation or whatever, the, the thing that was going on in the people was, is the Lord among us or not? And think about what these disciples are going to face when they see what they believe to be Messiah crucified, die, in the grave, all this. They are going to be challenged in a way that's probably difficult for any of us to even understand and relate to. But you got to think that in them, 
they're going to be asking a question very similar to, is the Lord among us or not? Was the Lord among us or not? This is a big deal. So he, he's having them pray that they wouldn't be tempted, and that Greek word tempted leads us back to Massa or Meribah, right? That, that kind of thing. I, I just think that's a super cool connection. The temptation for the disciples is to not trust what God is actually doing. Is he with us or not? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I thought that was good, but I said a lot about a short little bit there. What do you got, Samuel? Nothing other than this is the first time I've ever thought about that imagery, the olive imagery within this garden of Gethsemane. I thought that is just pretty mind-blowing as well. So thanks for bringing that to light. Yeah. Well, I read a lot of people. I'm sure none of it's original. But, you know, it's, yeah, there's neat stuff in here. Well, let's keep going then. So uh, let's move on. We're looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 37 and 38. Uh, Mark, verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verses 33 and 34, I'm going to read from Matthew. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Okay, now, Matthew and Mark, they're now adding that Jesus didn't, in fact, go alone when he was going farther along from his disciples. He actually took Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, with him. Now, Samuel, he's, he's called out these same three before. They've had kind of this special place before. Can you remember any instance where that happened? Uh, I remember Peter being up on the top of the mountain during the transfiguration when he's like, this is a good thing when Elijah and <laughs> Moses were there like, let's build a tabernacle for them to be yeah. here. So good call. That was all three of them went with him. They were separated from the rest of the disciples. They got to go up on the mount for the transfiguration. You remember any more? I don't. I only th- I only thought of one other. And that was when he healed Jairus's daughter. Everybody else had to stay outside, but he brought those three in with him. Interesting. So these three are definitely the inner circle. Another phrase that I'm fond of, you might call them the first among equals. And, you know, you just think about what role did they play in the story? Well, obviously for Peter, everybody remembers, well, Peter was the rock, you know, and and, and that's good. That's a good thing to remember. Peter was that. He had a very important role. Here's an interesting one, Samuel. James... He was the first of them to die. Okay, ignoring Judas because he killed himself. James was the first to die. He's martyred. John was the last to die. And I think this is also super cool. So Samuel, imagine if you had Jesus standing there and the disciples were all standing around him in a circle in the order in which they died. Well, then wouldn't you have James and John, one on his right and one mm. on his left? <gasps> oh, <laughs> they, these three, they get to witness things that the others do not. This time, they're going to witness what I think is probably Jesus's darkest moment or moments. So this is a big deal. But yeah, these three, they're special among the, well, let's call them the 12. We know that one's gone or will be soon. Again, I think there's just another example of the completeness of Jesus's humanity. In this moment, Jesus is sorrowful. He is distressed. He is troubled. He even tells the three that his soul is sorrowful even unto death. Now, interestingly, the language here, when he's talking about his soul, he's referring to what makes up his human life. We've talked about this before, where there's like, that humans have a nephesh, a, I don't know, it's kind of like a, a human soul or an earthly soul or a something, a temp- something, and it's the same thing that animals have, but there's also like an immortal soul. 
a neshama, and that's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is saying that his human soul, his nefesh, is sorrowful even unto death. It's uh, That nefesh is the thing that makes him a, a living creature here in creation, like all other humans, like all other animals, right? So he's having the complete human experience, just like us. Now, Again, we always have to say this. We're not discounting or diminishing his divine nature. We're good with that. We're simply emphasizing his human nature because so many try to diminish it. They just sort of wipe it away with, yeah, but Jesus was God. And that's a horrible way to look at it. He was walking around being human. Uh, he, and here's the part where he actually tells them. Notice he's only telling the three, telling them to watch, to Stay awake. Now, so far, we have Jesus not wanting to be, you know, completely alone. He wants his bros nearby, kind of sticking with him through the tough times. He is very, very human like us. And this, I think, it's like an ultimate encouragement for us as we try to navigate life. We can look back to especially stories like this and go, you know, Life was hard for Jesus, too. I mean, he was like the great example of perfect obedience, but guess what? It wasn't easy. It wasn't just, yeah, but he was God. He had struggles, even unto death. So, what do you got there, Samuel? Uh, I guess I'm wanting to hash out that phrase, his soul, my soul was sorrowful even to death. Like, I, I totally was following you with the language with the, the soul referring to the nefesh, but, like, uh, idiomatically, what does that mean to be, for a soul to be sorrowful even unto death? Yeah. Uh, what if I said something like, you know, modern lingo? Oh, my gosh. I, I could just die right now. I can't take anymore. I'm done. Just, I, I, just, I wish it could all just be over. I'm finished. Does that, does that make it any clearer? He was, he was at his wit's end. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I see that. I, I guess I've experienced that that example that you've painted, and maybe people being exasperated in times that aren't as heavy as what jesus is in right now so (laughs) well sure yeah yeah but i think i if if that's just like a phrase to say that you know he's he's at the end of his rope then like that that makes sense yeah yeah that's the way that i take it i would love if anybody listening has a much better interpretation of that by all means send us some info but yeah i think he's just expressing guys this is too much i mean I just, I am down. I feel mm. beaten. You know, this, this is what I'm being asked to do is more than I can bear kind of thing. Yeah, almost like the the sorrow itself is so heavy and burdensome that it feels like it could kill you in and of itself. Extinguish you, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Okay. Yeah. Nobody knows if we're right, but hey, at least we feel better about it. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah. Here, let's do let's do uh let's do one more. I know we're getting close to end of time, but hey, let's push it. Uh this is going to be we're looking at Matthew chapter 26 verse 39, Mark chapter 14 verses 35 and 36, and Luke chapter 22 verses 41 and 42. I'm going to go ahead and read Mark. It says this. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. So now, Jesus does separate himself even from his inner circle, the three. And he goes a little farther. And I mean, it's kind of funny. It says uh, in Luke, it says a stone's throw. 
And I'm just going to say, no one knows exactly how far this is, but I have it on great authority that this is farther than a hop, skip, and a jump. So maybe we can use that as at least one point of reference to try to figure out how far a stone's throw is. Well, and it's got to be close enough for these, uh, you know, the closest disciples for them to be able to hear what he's saying so that they can record it later, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. But th- this, I actually, you bring up something that's going to be quite confusing because, and I, okay, I, I'll give it away. They're going to be asleep. So how do they even know? Was it? <laughs> it's, Is it but, even the special three? Yeah, you'll see. You'll see. So anyway, uh, notice some of the things he says there. Jesus goes on and it says he fell on his face. He fell on the ground. Okay, just to be clear, Jesus didn't take a digger. <laughs> he's, he's preparing to pray. Let's take Luke's version of it. It says that he knelt down. Okay? <laughs> uh, he was going to pray... And he seemingly only has one topic. It's very simple. God, please don't make me do this. Let this hour pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Remove this cup from me. Now, the prophets all along, Samuel, they've, they've spoken of cups that... that must be consumed. It's usually referring to some sort of, you know, judgment or punishment or wrath, etc. This hour, this cup that Jesus uh, is facing, well, this is Jesus's upcoming suffering and death. And like so many in the Bible, Jesus is going to God. He's asking God to change his mind. And, and this happens a lot through our scriptures, you know, uh, more than, than you would guess. And God, not every time, but God will occasionally hear the prayer and, in fact, change his mind. He is not changing his nature. God never changes. But he can be, in some sense, negotiated with on certain things. But this time, I'm sorry to say, he will not. Now, I got to say this, Samuel. This is such an important moment. This is the reversal of the first garden story, the one with Adam and Eve. They were in a garden. Jesus is in a garden. They had a will and a desire of their own that was contrary to God's. And we see it right here. Jesus has a will and a desire of his own that's contrary to God's. He doesn't want this cup. They chose to follow their own desire. Define for themselves what is good and what is not good. They did not listen to God's instruction. And what happened? It led to death. Jesus turns that around and he chooses to follow God's will, God's desire, God's instructions. Even though it is the opposite of his own, he lets God be the one who defines what is good. And what is not good. He listens and it leads to life. The second Adam fulfills the role that the first Adam did not. And Samuel, if you could read just one last thing for us Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. And part of his education was this moment right here, through suffering. He had to work. It wasn't a passive thing. Jesus walked that walk, and it paid off, not just for him, but for all of us that, you know, are willing to believe and accept, etc. So, I don't know, Samuel. Pretty cool part of the story. Got anything? Yeah, I mean, it's this is like one of the most pivotal sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got s- several things. Um, I mean, Bring I, them on. I think that we should take to heart Jesus's emotional response with facing death right here. Like it, it, yeah, it shows that unequivocally universally death 
is not a good thing, and it's something that nobody wants to experience, even the Son right. of God himself. So, like, for us to to fear death, to want know, to want avoid it, avoid it, like yeah. it, that is natural, and yeah. it is something that, like, in our quest for pursuing righteousness and obedience, that is that is pushing back against death too. So, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to bring that up that there is there is opportunity there for us to emotionally connect with Jesus in yeah you know our own mortality as we all grow older and we get closer to death that we should not feel ashamed from those feelings of fear uncertainty whatever because right. Jesus was right there with us yeah uh, it only makes sense we were built for life death is that's the, the, that's the part of the story that got messed up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right, Samuel. It all makes perfect sense. Uh, the next thing I had was, and you, you said it absolutely 100% correct. I just wanted to rephrase it, hopefully, just so that we're not instilling any more misconceptions as we get closer to yeah. his death. You had, you had said about the connections between, in the, in the scriptures previously, that there are cups that come to play with prophets that must be consumed, judgment, punishment, wrath, and that this cup, Jesus' cup specifically, is suffering and death. We just, I know that when we hear, when the church hears the word wrath, mm-hmm. it so many times it gets painted that God the Father is pouring out his wrath on Jesus on the cross uh, so that we don't have to experience that. And, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Paul, but I think that here on this podcast we don't really hold that view that right that uh jesus's death was undeserving and you know god was orchestrating all of this but it was it was all from us from the sake of mercy or graciousness and like god was looking at i don't know the victory of jesus's obedience not like yeah, vindictively like smiting him down uh, exactly. from this cup. So I just wanted to nail that in the coffin to say that the cup is not wrath. The cup is suffering and death from human beings that were not listening to the voice of God. Yeah, yeah, you spoke for me and you spoke well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the last thing, you know, Jesus is asking God to change his mind and you said, you said this time he will not. Are we to assume that Jesus gets his answer like in that moment because I've kind of always interacted with this form of with this part of scripture as like Jesus is asking like if you can change the tide before all this happens like that would be awesome and I've always pictured in my mind he walks away from that like still up in the air is like what's going to happen but maybe I've looked at that wrong, and he got his answer right there in the garden. I mean, I know there's that's kind of an unanswerable question, but I just wanted to, yeah, give it some more space. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That is a good question. There is something interesting. I think we'll kind of address it as we move through the text in the next episode that may address that a little bit. And I, I'm going to go with at this moment. I don't know that Jesus feels like he's got his answer because he continues pushing God, pushing God, pushing God, trying to get him to change his mind. But I do think that by the time we get to the end of this little part of the story, that I, I think he does. I think he does know God's response and that God's hmm. going, uh, sorry, not this time. Hmm. You're going to have to go with it. But we'll see more of that as we go. Gotcha. Yeah. Anything else? I am done, Zo. All right. Well, again, I think you're right. This is probably the most climactic part of the entire story in our Bible. And thankfully, we went a little long and didn't leave everybody on a cliffhanger. You can now rest in that climax, and and we'll do the follow-up after. Huh? Sounds good. All right. I think we're done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. 
and be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.